You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. We're jumping into a new series, as I said earlier. And so we're going to take a little time at the beginning to make sure that we set the stage well for the new series. We've not been in Second Kings yet, and it's also picking back up from First Kings. So we're going to take some time to make sure we set the stage well for that. And one of the best ways to do that is to kind of uh, utilize communion to kind of get us set. So we'll be having communion today in the middle of the message. So I'm going to kind of intro things. I'm going to kind of set the stage for the book as a whole. We'll have communion, and then I'll come back, and in the remaining time, I'll kind of teach you specifically the first and second chapters of Second Kings, all right? So if you want to put a thumb in Second Kings, feel free to. As you do that, I would just ask you to be thinking of maybe a time in your life in which you experienced disappointment. I asked the first service, have you ever been disappointed? And I think that's 100% yes from the crowd. Wouldn't you agree? And let's admit that probably all of us would say that we've experienced disappointment on a range, small disappointment to severe disappointment. When you're a teenager, you think you're disappointed, and for your maturation level and for your experience, you are, but as you get older, you look back, you're like, well, that really wasn't that disappointing after all, but it seemed like in the moment, wouldn't you agree? And so we don't want to minimize the various disappointments that we all go through, regardless of our age or our uh, season of life. So be thinking, when were you disappointed? And wherever on that spectrum you are, when did you experience that disappointment? When did you have to deal with unmet expectations? Because that's actually what disappointment is. If you never had expectations, you would never be disappointed, true? But we create expectations for whatever reason. And then when those aren't met, we find ourselves disappointed to some degree, great or small. When was yours? I was thinking through some of my own. And I hadn't yet shared them with Julie, just like things in my life that I thought, yeah, that was kind of disappointing. And I thought, I'll ask her first. So I said, honey, when do you think you have some disappointments? And very quickly she said, our miscarriage. And I was thinking a little more along the lines of maybe other issues, and that kind of sobered our conversation. And I agree with her. I remember that that time, and I know she feels that exponentially to a deeper degree. But in the moment, you're thinking, this is not what I was planning on. You had this sense, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Can we just admit that? And And we trusted God, she trusted God. We walked by faith, and yet there's this gnawing feeling like, yeah, that's not what I was planning on. I don't think I'm the only person rowing that boat in this room. I ask you to consider that because I think that is a tremendously good word to summarize where we find ourselves in the four books, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. We come to 2 Kings, and I think one of the best words to describe the landscape of Israel's history at this point is the word disappointment. And that's not to say that God's word is disappointing, all right? You hearing me well? But the chronicling of Israel's history up to this point 
has not been the most encouraging. Would you agree? In fact, I think you would have to admit with me that as you read the Kings, you begin to realize, wow, there's a lot of disappointment in these books. In fact, can I just show you the disappointment? The the disappointing nature of their history in this time? Because you may be wondering, how did we get to 2 Kings? We're going to start in chapter 1 in a minute. The backdrop is this whole word disappointment. How did we get here? Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel. Remember when they were frustrated with God and they longed for a king? And so they asked the Lord, hey, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. That was the beginning of their disappointment. And so their first king came in their demand for a king. His name was Saul. And 1 Samuel mainly deals with King Saul. We looked at that for a number of months. We moved from there, from their demand for a king, to their next king, which was their best king. But can we just say this? His life was pretty dysfunctional. So they demanded a king. The first one, he was insecure and fearful. Their next king, David, was dysfunctional in a lot of ways. Still a man after God's own heart, no doubt. Had some bright spots, but just a lot of personal dysfunction. And so the, the culture and the kingdom really suffered from a lot of those things. Solomon ended up taking the throne eventually after 40 years of David's reign. And his kingdom was really marred at the end by division. So think about this. In just the first three kings, we have one that came from a demand, a worldly demand by people in rebellion to God. The second one was filled with dysfunction, and the third one ended with division. We're not off to a great start, are we? <laughs> Out of these first three, two of them are actually considered good kings. Once Solomon passes on, his sons take over, and that ends, like I said, in division. And you have, from that point forward, 39 additional kings that are covered in both 1 Kings and 2 Kings. We begin in 2 Kings today looking at part of those 39. 20 in what we know is the, I think it's the southern kingdom, 19 in the northern. Maybe it's flip-flop there. I didn't label them there for you. But we cover a number of kings, 42 in all. Watch this. Out of the 42 kings in these four books, 10 are considered good kings. That's not a good batting average, is it? Not when it comes to kings, at least. Out of the ten that were good, none of them were in the northern kingdom. I mean, they're batting zero. This is what the children of God were living under. And though God warned them of this and predicted this in 1 Samuel, that your kings would take your sons and put them into battle. He will tax you. He'll take your fields. He'll do things. You'll, you'll think this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'll grant you your request. And the chronicling of the king years of Israel is really a chronicling of disappointment in their leaders, king after king after king. Todd, why do you share that with us? I thought this would be an encouraging message. Aren't we supposed to come to church and be filled with hope? You are in this way because I think the writers... Of these four books, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they wrote that way on purpose for one reason. To point you to the king who never disappoints. You see, often we read these four books and we think, well, how can that be right and how can that be good? And the, the bare truth is it's not good. It's not right. There are many things in these books that they did that is evil and wrong. And so they point us to the king that will never disappoint us. 
they highlight the one who is righteous and holy, and that's King Jesus. So as we dive into 2 Kings, remember, you're going to read about a number of disappointments. You're going to see the trajectory of their kings headed downward consistently. A few bright spots here and there, but it's not a pretty picture for the next few weeks. But the writers do this intentionally so that we would be not drawn to see the success of man or to find our solution in men, but to find our longing in King Jesus, to find our satisfaction in his kingdom. In fact, I would say to you this way in a very succinct manner that the writers here intentionally show the continuing spiritual poverty of Israel as a backdrop to highlight the continuing spiritual plan of God that even amidst terrible kings and a a spiraling country, God is still unfolding his plan to bring about their true king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So I need you to make sure that you have that focus as we kind of delve through chapter after chapter this final season in this series called The Kings and the King. My sense is, though, that you can relate to this. I don't think this catches you off guard. You can relate to things around you not going as you thought they should. And I think that God uses those narratives in our life currently to point us to Christ, don't you? To create in us a longing that only he can fill. Last Easter, Andrew Peterson wrote a song that I think succinctly identifies and captures this emotion. Lisette's going to join me for a few minutes. I want to teach it to you. Because this song, I think, really sets the stage, not just for 2 Kings, and the, and the disappointment you sense in their culture, and the longing in their heart for, for the ultimate king, but I think it speaks to our situation as well. I mean, have you ever just asked yourself, like, in your moments of disappointment, just, you know what, this doesn't seem like this is the way it should be. I mean, you trust God, you believe Him, you know that a better day's coming when Christ returns and makes all things right. You agree with that. But in the moment, in your honest humanity, you're like, but something's just not right right now. I'm sure you've thought that. I think God uses those narratives in our life to point us to the King who never disappoints. Amen. To cause our hearts to long for heaven to cause our hearts to long for the day when his kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven, when his will will be done perfectly. This is not to minimize the good kings in Israel's history or the good leaders in our current time. But you know what? When men and women are at their best, let's be honest, they are still at best just men and women. They're not Jesus. And there's injustice. There are things that don't add up. There's hurt, there's pain, and you feel it. And sometimes you think, man, this life, even at its best, is sometimes just disappointing. That's what these narratives say to us. They chronicle much disappointment. Why? Because God is showing us that Israel's hope was not in an earthly king. We're going to see it king after king after king. And he's pointing them to the root of David, 
the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who would come and give his life as a ransom for many, the king who would lay down his life for his people. And so these books are written to point us to Jesus. And you know what? The narrative of your life, God will do the very same thing. He'll use your disappointments. He'll use the landscape of your life and all of its ups and downs to show you your hope is not in this world. It's in the next. And it's in the ruler of the next world, Jesus Christ, our true king. Amen. I think you get the title of the series now, don't you? The Kings and the King. And for four books, we've looked at many kings in Israel's history, every single one of them with their issues and problems. But they point us to the one who was perfect and holy and righteous, who came once to deal with sin and die for us, who ascended back to heaven and is now waiting to return at the Father's command to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we don't keep our eyes on how we're disappointed, do we? Though we admit it happens, we keep our eyes on the true king who's still waiting to come a second time for his people. You know, that sense of disappointment that I think pervaded Israel is, is noticeable even as we get into the very beginning of 2 Kings chapter 1. Are you there in your Bible by now? I've given you plenty of time to get there, right? <laughs> 2 Kings 1, in verse 3, we find this question that Elijah asks the king. The current king in Israel, their capital being Samaria, is Ahaziah, excuse me, Ahaziah. And he fell through the lattice, which is like in a balcony area, and he apparently injured himself. We don't know to what degree, perhaps it was possibly fatal and he felt it was going to take his life. We don't know. But in his moment of distress, he asks his messengers to go and inquire of an idol. Elijah hears of this and sends word to him through an angel of the Lord leading him this way to, to ask this simple question. Is there not a God in Israel? I mean, can't you just sense the, the prophet's disappointment? Like, wow. Hello, king. You're the leader of God's people. You're in a tough situation physically, and you look for an idol to help you? <laughs> Hello, don't you remember? We're God's people. I mean, you, I can just sense the disappointment in Elijah towards the king and also just kind of helping us understand how the landscape of their, of their country must have been at this time. In fact, this question asked in chapter 1, verse 3, is asked three times in this chapter. Verse 3 as well as then again in verse, what is it, verse 6, I think it is, and then again later in verse um, 16. The story basically goes like this. When Elijah went to tell the king, hey, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't ask the idols to help you. You should ask God. After all, you're his king and among his people. Is there not a God in Israel? Well, the king heard of that, and so he said, that's Elijah, I can tell you that. He said, go and get him. And the point of the king's interception of Elijah was, I think, to capture him and silence him. And so he sent 50 soldiers with one captain. They were going to take Elijah by force, and they go to meet Elijah on the hill, and they say to him, come down. Elijah says, I tell you what, I won't come down, but I'll call down fire if I'm the man of God. I think what he's doing is, I'll show you that God is alive. There is a God in Israel 
Fire does come down and devours the 50 soldiers and the one captain. King hears of this, and you would think he would say, wow, I don't want to lose any more soldiers, but he doesn't. He sends another band of 50 with another captain. They go to Elijah on the hill. And this time, if you read the text, they don't just say, come down. They say, come down quickly. (laughs) He calls down fire again. Another sign. There is a God in Israel. He's alive and active and calling you to repentance for your idolatry. The king still doesn't listen. He sends a third group of 50 soldiers with a captain. This time, the captain of the 50 is wiser than the king, and he gets to Elijah, and he says, Elijah, please, uh, no more pyromaniac action, okay? Uh, Be gracious. Be merciful. We're doing foolishly here. I don't want to die. Elijah hears that, and in mercy, he says, you're right. I'll go to the king. And so he goes to the king, and he tells the king again, This is a terrible idea, a sinful idea for you to ask an idol for help. Is there not a God in Israel? The king refuses to listen to Elijah personally. And sure enough, just as God predicted and prophesied, the king died. You may say, well, he must have died of his wounds from falling off the balcony through the lattice. No, he died as a judgment of God because of his rebellious idolatry and sin. He would not listen to the Lord. And so while 2 Kings 1 seems to kind of be summarized by the question, you know, is there not a God in Israel? It's kind of the the whole narrative is really asking that question and Elijah trying to, to show the king and show the people, yes, there's a God. Though they didn't listen, I think in chapter 2 we find a very, very clear answer. I want to focus your attention for our remaining minutes, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 2, where I think the answer to the question is most clear. Now, let me, under, let me help you understand something here. It wasn't just the king who was living in functional atheism. You know what that is, right? It's when you say with your mouth, oh, there's a God, we believe, but every one of your actions denies that. This is the king. He's the king of Israel, God's people. And yet, when he has a need, who does he run to? He runs to the idols. And is that something we ought to ask ourselves? Though you're here in church, though you may be part of God's people, though you may have religious surroundings, even religious lingo in your actions, do you actually live like a functional atheist? Denying God by running to your idols for every one of your needs? I'll just mention this before I get to chapter 2. I think one of the best remedies for functional atheism is prayer. You say, well, Todd, that doesn't sound like a real big weapon. (laughs) Actually, it's the most mentioned weapon in Ephesians 6. Did you know that? Which is lists the armor of God. It's the most mentioned weapon. But here's why I think prayer is one of our best weapons and best allies in the fight against functional atheism. Living like God doesn't exist, though we say he does. It's because prayer puts us in the posture of dependency. And what was King Ahaziah showing? He was showing independence, wasn't he? I don't need God. I'll just ask an idol. I'll solve this myself. And he should have prayed to the God of heaven. He should have prayed to Yahweh and said, Lord, here's my physical situation. I need your help. He should have been dependent. We say at First Family quite often that prayer is our first and best action. And 
responding in prayer to every need, every situation, is always the first and best right thing. And by the way, this does not negate action on our part. It does not mean that God won't work through providential means or through miraculous ways to meet our needs. It may be that God will hear your prayer and give you a job to meet your financial needs. That would be work. Does that make sense? That could be a providential way God answered your prayer. He may send you a check in the mail. He may not. But the point of prayer is not to say, God, will you give me what I want? The point of prayer is to put us in a posture of dependence to the King of Kings. And in doing so, we show him we are dependent. And that's the life that says, wow, I'm not a functional atheist. I'm an, I'm an dependent child of God. I know God exists, and in every one of my actions, I'm going to show that God exists. The king didn't do this, but in chapter 2, we find the clear and present answer to this question that Elijah kept using to try to get the king's attention. Is there a God in Israel? Well, there sure is. Beginning in verse 9, Elijah begins to transfer his authority and his mission uh, and his ministry to Elisha. All right? And by the way, not only was the king living as a functional atheist, I think there were some sons of the prophets who were doubting, perhaps, that God was going to continue his work. If you read previous to verse 9, there are the sons of the prophets in Jericho and the sons of the prophets in Bethel, and they were asking Elisha, hey, do you know that your master's leaving? So they were aware that Elijah was about done with his ministry, and I think the sense of that question is this. If Elijah leaves, is God done with us? Hey, Elisha, are you aware of this? Like, if, if he leaves, we're toast, man. So you have the king on one hand just living like God doesn't exist, ignoring uh, clear signs. You have these sons of the prophets in two locations wondering, is, is there anything going to happen after Elijah leaves? And so here we see God's answer now. Verse 9, Elijah said to Elisha after they had crossed the Jordan, he says, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, meaning he would receive a double portion, correct? And he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. There he's just voicing what he saw. It's kind of like the, a way to verify. Hey, I saw it. I'm going to voice it to prove to you I saw it because he was wanting the double portion. And he saw Elijah no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Now, if you read previously in this chapter, there was a parting of the Jordan earlier by Elijah. Now, watch what God is going to show in this. He's going to show that he is not absent. He isn't disappearing. He's continuing to remain with them and be alive in their country. Watch this. Elisha took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, and here it is, almost the same question now. Watch this. Where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? Don't you like that? He's saying, okay, you've been asking the king, and the sons of the prophets. Is there not a God in Israel? Come on, guys. Well, you're acting like God doesn't exist. Let's just clear the air. Is there a God in Israel? Where is God, the, the Lord of Elijah? 
And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. The very same miracle showing that God did not leave when Elijah left. Instead, he sent a double portion upon Elisha. God was still alive and present and working. What's so amazing about this is he's doing this in the middle of a nation that's spiraling downward. Now watch what happens in the rest of the chapter just briefly. I won't read all the verses to you. But notice how the power, the provision, and the protection of God is seen as an answer to chapter 1. Remember, the king would not turn to God. Even though God kept speaking to him in very clear ways, he kept rebelling and the Lord then took his life. Watch this. God clearly says, Elisha, I'm still here. I'm continuing my work. I'm continuing my power. In between verses 15 and about 18, we see God's power in that some folks think maybe Elijah has been you know, lost or maybe taken up. And Elisha just says, guys, don't go looking for him. It was God's power that did that. So God's power is on display. Verses 19 through about 22, God's provision is on display. There's some bad water. It's making people sick. It's not good for the community. Elisha is able to perform a miracle by God's power to bring provision for the people, which is the water. I mean, water is the basic sustenance of life. So here they are now. Elisha has been used by God to help provide for his people. And then in 23 through about 25, the end of the chapter, He's protected by God's power. You find there's some um, boys making fun of him. Apparently, Elijah was a lot like your pastor. Excuse me, Elisha was a lot like your pastor and bald-headed, right? Uh, they're making fun of him, and he just simply rebukes them, and God protects him via two she-bears. What you find is that God displays his power in that very first miracle by Elisha and then continues to show, I'm here, I'm alive. The nation is crumbling. Things are in despair. It's a disappointing cultural landscape, but I'm not dead. And he shows his power in his provision, in his protection, in his presence. Isn't that comforting to know? That even when you're in the middle of situations that are disappointing, that make you long for the day when it won't be this way, even in the middle of that, God is powerful and able and there and alive, providing for you, protecting you. In fact, I think this is quite intriguing, if you'll just permit me for an extra minute to notice something here. I was strangely struck by how each of these scenarios in chapter two, God protecting Elisha, God providing for Elijah and Elisha and the people, as well as uh, God showing his power, they would have been completely sufficient for King Ahaziah's request. Do you remember that? He fell through the lattice. He was injured physically. We don't know to what degree, but he sought help in an idol. If he would have just sought help from God, watch this. God was fully able to take care of Ahaziah's needs. He brought water to people who needed it. He protected Elijah from those who wanted to hurt him verbally as well as physically probably. Why didn't the king just say, God, you're fully powerful to protect and provide. I'll ask you. He didn't, though. He instead rebelled and asked the idol. I just think it's interesting. The answer in chapter 2 is so clear and exclamatory, isn't it? Yes, you bet there's a God in Israel. 
His name is Yahweh, and he is powerful and will provide and will protect. In fact, he proved to do exactly this at an even deeper level hundreds of years later. Let's fast forward the continuing plan of God, even amidst a crumbling, even disappointing culture. Fast forward hundreds of years. Does God's plan come to fruition? It does. Jesus Christ is born of a virgin. And the Bible says this, that when he, the king of the Jews, is born, watch this, he will save his people from their sins. You see, Ahaziah's real need wasn't his physical injury from the the lattice fall. His real sickness was of his soul. Do you know that? His inability to, to submit to God and hear the Lord and turn to Christ. Even with that going on in the kingdom and even with that going in the culture, God's continuing plan unfolded in the midst of disappointing circumstances. Christ came, was born, and he has done all that's necessary. He has fully provided, powerfully provided to meet our deepest need, which is our soul's sickness. So as you sit there today and you contemplate perhaps some of your disappointments, are you in the group of people that says, in the middle of those, this, those disappointments, I have not turned to earthly idols. I have instead turned to God. And I've let God provide and protect me at the level it matters most, and that is at my soul. You see, don't be like King Ahaziah. Don't turn a deaf ear to the Lord. Even though he's speaking all around you, powerfully, and drawing you to himself, don't turn a deaf ear to God. Instead, hear God calling you to repentance and say yes to him. You see, this is really, as we kind of analyze this, we begin to see the take-home truth kind of emerge from this text. That even though the nation was spiraling downward, God continued to speak. Isn't that comforting to know? I mean, it is a disappointing set of chapters in some ways. And the book itself is just a chronicle of of a number of disappointing kings. And yet, church, listen, God was right in the middle of every one of these speaking and drawing his people back to himself. And he ultimately did this in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me show you how, how this is so true, how the unfolding plan of God reaches its climax and fulfillment in Christ. Here's what Hebrews says about this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this beautiful description of Christ as the final spokesmoment of God. The writer says this long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's 2 Kings. That's 1 Kings. That's Samuel's. Are you with me? The kings and the different people. Man, God's speaking by the prophets, his word. Repent, believe, follow me. But in these last days, Hebrews 1 says this, he has spoken to us by whom? His son. The sense of that phrase is he's ultimately and finally spoken to us now. The son, he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The son, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, that's the culmination of the old covenant, Christ did come just as God said. 
He did everything that was required of the Old Testament. He gave his life, and God was satisfied when he raised him from the dead. Our sins are, are, are covered. They're atoned for. They're forgiven. The Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The real answer to your soul's deepest sickness, the real answer to your great disappointment, is nothing on this earth. It's in the one from heaven who satisfies all of God's wrath against sin, calls sinners to repentance, and saves them when they repent, makes them part of his family once and for all. That's the one that they were looking for who came and fulfilled that, and that's the one that we're now waiting for. But watch this, church. We're not waiting for him to come back and deal with sin. Do you know that? He did that at his first coming, correct? That's what the Old Testament shows. That's what all of these chronicles in the Kings and Samuels and the different prophets that spoke into that. They're showing the, the, the redemptive plan of God culminating in Christ who's dying for the sins of, of the world. We love that and so we place our faith in Christ. What are we waiting on right now? We're waiting for him to come back and eagerly save those who have believed. So my question to you is this. Have you believed in the one that all of, the, all of these kings point to? Namely, Jesus Christ, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings. Are you hearing God speak to you through Jesus and his work on the cross, calling you to Calvary? And will you listen and say, Lord Jesus, I'll, I can't deal with disappointment. I can't deal with my soul's real issue. I can't deal with my, my, my deepest sickness apart from Christ. God, would you through Jesus save me today? And God promises to the repentant sinner who by faith will call on his name, God promises to save. And then that group of people who are known as God's people, the saved ones, the church, they're waiting now for this same Jesus to return. But this time not to deal with sin, but to rescue us from all of this disappointing landscape and culture. Did you know that? We're waiting for him to return, this time on a white horse, and bringing the kingdom that is in heaven and to establish it on earth. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your, your kingdom come. Your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're waiting on. Hebrews 9 describes this perfectly. Listen to these verses as I close. Hebrews chapter 9. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's his first coming, culminating in the end of the Old Testament, right? Actually, the end of the Gospels, actually. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. My question for you is this. As you read through the kings with me over the next several months, and as we see how they point us to the true king, Will you allow God to use his word to point your vision and, and your heart towards his second coming? Will you let the Lord arouse in you an anticipation for the day when it will no longer be disappointing? When the injustice that you see when the things that you wish weren't the way they were, when all those will end and all that's wrong will be made right. That's what the king of kings is coming to do when he comes again.
I, for one, am longing for that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? So church, though we've had some stark moments this week, we've read about some difficult situations, we've seen people rebelling against God, this is disappointing, yes. Here's what's not disappointing. Jesus is coming again. And he will rescue his people. Are you in that people? And if not, today would be the day of your salvation. If you would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And I would encourage you. I would exhort you. I would urge you as a pastor to put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. Be in that number of people who are waiting for the coming of Christ. Who are waiting for Christ to finish, as Philippians 1.6 says, to finish what he started. And he will. That's what we're bound for. Amen, church? So even amidst our disappointments, let us together as one band, as one army, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, longing for our true heavenly home, knowing we're citizens of heaven, we're just strangers and pilgrims here. And let's together march as one under the headship and banner of Christ as a people bound for glory. Let's pray, shall we? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.